Hello there. Thank you so much for listening to the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet, providers of life-changing financial advice. Uh, As you know, there are three things that you can do with money. You can spend it. That's why we talk with entrepreneurs and business leaders. You can save it. That's why we talk to financial experts like Kingsfleet. Or you can give it away. And that's why we talk to community groups, charities, uh, and community interest organisations that really have a focus looking after people within our county. Today's guest is Debbie Watson, who is from Wednesday's Child. And I would certainly recommend you have a look at their website, which is wednesdayschild.co.uk. What you'll find as we talk with Debbie, she's very happy to share her own personal experience of eating disorders. And rather than simply just accepting that, Debbie has then introduced this amazing organisation as a way of people being able to reach out and find help and support when it's something they're going through. I have to admit it's something which I was completely oblivious to. It's not something that I'd ever spent any time learning about but I was really grateful to Debbie for what she's just about to talk you through and for being so open and so willing to share her experience. So this is Debbie Watson from Wednesday's Child. Debbie, it's so good to be able to talk to you today. I've seen lots about everything you do. What's a week look like for you? Let's just start with all the things that you're involved in. Oh my goodness. Oh, it's lovely to chat to you. And thank you so much for inviting me to do this. So what does a week look like? Well, um, I like to spin a few plates, that's for sure. So a lot of people will know that um, I run a PR consultancy. So that in itself is quite busy with lots and lots of clients. And I'm really you know, proud it's, it's something that I set up after having uh, had a number of years as a journalist in the region and then set up um, a PR agency. And I've been doing that for, gosh, over 20 years now, which is quite scary. So there aren't many sort of sectors and types of organisation I haven't worked with in the PR and marketing space. So, you know, day to day, that's very busy. I might be on site with clients. Thankfully, we can actually go and see clients now. And I have clients throughout Suffolk, Norfolk, Essex and some in London I'm even in Yorkshire and I also because I lived overseas in Geneva and Switzerland for a bit so I, I also do some international work as well so it's, uh, it's busy certainly on that side and then with a kind of another hat that I've worn in recent years I set up a not-for-profit organisation which some of your listeners may know called Wednesday's Child and Wednesday's Child helps support individuals and families affected by eating disorders so that's so, another very big part of my world. Yeah, that's right. I don't know how you fit it all in when you're running a business to then have something that's so important to you and something that you're so enthusiastic about telling yeah. a story. Yeah, how, that's how right. You, I mean, how do you fit it all in? Well, I, I think, you know, ask a busy person. I'm, I'm someone that I, I do perhaps validate myself quite a bit on productivity and doing things. And, you know, I'm, I'm in a really fortunate position in my life, I suppose, you know, while I've got nieces and wonderful family and wonderful friends I don't have children running around and myself and you know those are my friends that do tell me that that takes an awful lot of time so I don't have that time sponge so maybe that's where I get a little bit more space to be able to throw some other things into life and also to be able to do you know the, the sort of kind of lifestyle stuff that I enjoy doing whether it's running or swimming or whatever to give myself some headspace but um yeah the Wednesday's child is is something that I didn't know where it would go when I started it. I started it in 2019, so pre-pandemic, and, and thought there was just 
something that needed to be done in this space. And I thought maybe it'll just run alongside what I do with the PR agency. And it very quickly became an animal because if you start to speak to people in that, you know, I want to say community of those that have experienced an eating disorder, either because they've suffered themselves or because they've supported someone, all of a sudden when they see an organization prepared to hear their voice and share a story, it really matters. And then far more so than when you put something out on social media about PR and marketing, you might get a few people in the business world comment on it. But when you put something out about eating disorders, you'll get 25 emails back saying, my God, that resonated with me. Let me tell you my story. And when you've opened that can and you've been there yourself, you know how important it is to go back to every single one and say, I get that. I, I remember that. I know what that mm. feels like. So yes, it grew legs very quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's been running since 2019. What, uh, what was it that effectively was the, the thing that made you think, well, I've actually got to do something here? Yeah, so well, if I take you back a little bit, I in terms of my own personal experience, so I I grew up as somebody as a teenager and um, you know, as a young adult, really hadn't ever had any thought to overly obsess about my food and weight and I, you know I really want to make that clear it's not something like all my life I had you know what we didn't have a the family wasn't on a diet constantly and we weren't talking about diet food and perhaps in the 80s it, it wasn't the way and you know my, my brother and I were actually joking at the weekend that we used to swim competitively both of us so we do early morning training and then we'd come home and we'd have a full bowl of frosties and we would fight over the top of the milk and then we would put the sugar on the top of the milk and it, just the thought of compromising food just wasn't in my kind of rhetoric. It just didn't happen at all. But somewhere along the line, life changed quite dramatically for me. I went from living this wonderful little life in Suffolk with a, quite a nice, normal 2.4 family. And I went to university. And I'm never going to say that university was a bad thing for me, but it did. It just changed my world. And perhaps I was more homesick or out of my comfort zone than I ever thought I was very very was it I was an extreme sort of perfectionist high achiever at school went to university in Lancashire and very quickly felt so just at odds with the world it just things didn't feel right and there was just a really uncomfortable period in my life where I lived in a halls of residence but it was just really unfortunate there was drug dealing going on there was a police raid on our um, uh, halls of residence something this little girl from Suffolk was not used to because mm -hmm. I still drunk yeah. and smoked and all those sort of things it was very strange and I can't say that any one of those things sparked the eating disorder. What I say to most people, it isn't usually one thing. It's not just because you experience, you know, the death of a loved one or a divorce or because you're bullied. But often it's a perfect storm. And for me, right. I look back and say, as a child, I was bullied an awful lot. I was the bushy haired girl at school with bushy eyebrows and who was a bit of a bookaholic because I love to read and write. I'd been taught to read and write before I went to primary school. And I got taught separately from the other kids. And so maybe there was some stuff there in Her and I. This is not a psychological therapy kind of podcast I get, but I'm just kind of giving you some context. <laughs> yeah. well, went to university and then lots of things happened. And I don't even remember the switch. I don't remember where I said, I'm not going to eat. I'm worried about my weight. But I know over the course of that first year I was away, I stopped wanting to contact my parents so much because I was so desperately homesick, but I didn't want them to know I was failing. And within a year or so, I had become extremely emaciated, very just, just, I just lost all kind of 
love for myself and compassion, I suppose. And it was some kind of way of my emotions and feelings about myself were just, they were coming out in how I was treating myself and how the illness was manifesting. And so it, it, it happened quite, quite quickly. And did, did those around you notice anything? Well, the interesting I, I, or say anything, I suppose, yeah, rather I mean, notice. The interesting is, the thing about university, of course, is they're early friendships, aren't they? Mm. This isn't, mm. you're not around the same bunch of people you've been at high school with for the last yeah. 10 years. So they were all very new friends. I'd make friends quite quickly. And there were like, you know, Deb, you're, so I, as soon as I got to university, Miss Amber, overambitious, wanted to be a journalist, you know, was straight onto my journalism degree. And we had busy course. We were learning shorthand at 9am every morning. And, but I'd also, I went to Freshers' Fair to find out about the student newspaper. And within a few months, I was asked if I'd be the news editor of it and then the editor of it. And so I was getting up before my lectures to go and just walk to the newspaper office, run the newspaper, then go to my lectures. Then we, you've got to go out to, as was Tokyo Joe's, the nightclub until three the next morning and, and kind of rinse, repeat. So I was doing a lot that could just be explained away as, oh yeah, but I'm really busy and, and I'm just loving life and, and I'm doing lots of things. I was just, no, no, don't you worry. I just haven't got time to eat. So I was very good with excuses. And if anybody's listening to this, whether you're an adult or a child or you've got a child, know that the excuses mask a lot of behaviors around eating disorders so always be aware of that somebody with an eating disorder becomes very quick at deception and that's not to say you know it's not kind of um it's not something to be to blame those people for or assassinate them for but actually unfortunately deceit comes with an illness like an eating disorder so from your perspective were you actually being deceitful or, or were you just that was actually how you were you were really busy you weren't taking yeah. time to yeah absolutely it, it, it's very true I was able to I think I believed the life I, I believe my own story and, and yeah. I think all of us can we can create a narrative that says well I have to be this way and I am this way and it's just because and and maybe we often think it's temporary as well and it's fixable yes and the problem that you learn as you understand more about an eating disorder is early intervention is everything. So you let that brain start to unravel for too long and redoing it, kind of repairing it, takes a mammoth ask. And unfortunately for me, back in the day of, so I went to university in 96, so you're talking very late part of the 90s. Although today you and I talk about mental health pretty much every day of our working lives in one way or the other. Mm. just wasn't it what that wasn't the case even 20 years ago was it no. you couldn't reach out and say to someone I have mental health issues I need to take a pause on my studies and you really I mean I even remember when I when it was clear that I'd got this thing called anorexia nervosa my mum having to go to Woodbridge Library to try and find a book on the shelf that would tell her a little bit about it well you look now we'd google it over breakfast wouldn't we and try and find some it mm. just it was a very different world mm. so back then an eating disorder that built up in a young person like myself and then set root and stayed for several years is much, much harder to unpick. And every day now that I have a conversation with a parent and they say, am I worrying too much? Should I do something about this? I say to them, early intervention is everything. There are two issues to putting, um, getting somebody back on the path of recovery of an eating disorder. One is nutritional rehabilitation. They both begin with NR. You can tell I'm NPR. I like slogans, but <laughs> nutritional rehabilitation is one, which is obviously the food part. You have to be able to replenish the brain. And unfortunately, that comes with energy. So one way or the other, whether we 
supplement that person's diet however we do it they have to start repairing with food because the brain like any other organ in the body is an organ and it needs food to operate on so we need the brain to function to help that person to get well but the other part is neural rewiring what you do with an eating disorder is you undo all the wiring that's cognitively set in place in that growing phase of your teenage years and the longer that's been allowed to unravel the harder it takes to repair a brain at any stage whether you're a young person or an older person and particularly with me I wasn't fully grown even at 19 20 hence why you know at 23 I was diagnosed with osteoporosis because there was a lot of development that was still happening at that age and I was sabotaging it very early on so but if you can get hold of a child like like now we've experienced families who say their child started to suffer from anorexia or bulimia during the pandemic and, and during covid we can say okay that was a really bad period but let's sort it now let's not wait till she's 25 and deal with it Let, let's deal with where that child had that year at home and it was awful let's solve this or, or get it back onto the right path and that's just not me anecdotally saying these two things are really important. There's a lot of research out there. And I would say to anybody that's listening, anybody who's a bit of a nerd about liking to look up studies, I would say to them, take note of something called the Minnesota Starvation Diet. And it's the or Minnesota Starvation Experiment. And it's the most frightening thing that nobody would ever be allowed to do now. And, and I can see as a as somebody that likes to research and knows kind of you know like, like, likes to understand human psychology i'm sure you'd be fascinated by this one colin but this was something that they did with a bunch of very normal guys in the 1940s and they wanted to understand post-world war ii what would happen to britons who had very little access to food because we all knew after the war there wasn't really much access to food mm. what would happen to people if they lived in starvation so they took this humble bunch of guys who'd never had any issues with weight body these were meat and gravy men who'd never thought about compromising on their potatoes mm -hmm. and they took them and they immediately said we're going to slash the amount of food you're allowed to eat and they basically made these guys live on paltry amounts of calories per day and run obsessively until they lost even more weight and they did some really cruel things they ran them past things like bakeries where they could smell you know food constantly and they would make them not be allowed to rest and what they found very, very quickly, this happened very quickly, and these were normal men, as I say, never dieted, never knew anything about diet. It was the 1940s. And they became obsessive in their thought about food restriction, reading cookery books, thinking and dreaming about food, self-sabotaging. So one guy even cut all his uh, fingers off on one hand. Um, they would just be obsessed with how tiny their waist could be and wanting to look even skinnier. Now, what we learn from that is starvation breeds an eating disorder mindset. So right. when we start to reduce calories, our body responds by saying, all I can think of now is food restriction and food. And it's a bit like if I put you in a desert, all you would think about is water, you know, and mm -hmm. the brain reacts in this really incredible, clever way of saying, I just need food. I need food and I cannot stop thinking about food. And that's exactly what happened to these men. So it mm -hmm. took them years even after they were refed so they, they didn't stay in this life for long it was about another six months and they said right well we now know what's going to happen to people if they live in starvation they fed these guys up but for the rest of their lives they were obsessed with weight obsessed with diet some of them wanted to retrain to be cooks and to be around food all the time to learn to bake the food obsession became ingrained 
and yes. that was from a period of incredible food restriction so that just yeah. goes to show you know it, it yeah. kind of so it's it's kind of a weird weird cyclical thing that to make somebody diet creates a psychological damage of harm of dieting goodness me yeah so it has that impact throughout the whole body yeah. um yeah goodness me um i'm just uh, if that's okay to just go back to your own circumstances so you'd been away for a term was there an, an indication early on to your family um when you returned back to suffolk when i returned back yeah gosh because i i even ended up my mum ended up in sh with shingles as soon as i got back just because i looked nothing like i'd looked at you know and you can imagine really? that early stuff. on yeah, yeah, re you know, I, I just didn't look anything like me. And also I, w I didn't cognitively function like me. Um, so that's something also to bear in mind. People don't always, I, I went down a restrictive eating disorder pathway. It's also worth bearing in mind eating disorders aren't just about restriction. So yep. you may have heard of, I'm sure, kind of in words like anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa. Anorexia is the one we associate more with restriction. Bulimia yep. would be more about vomiting. You've got binge purge eating disorder. Um, so you've got various variants of eating disorders, but anorexia is the one where it's more closely associated with restriction and losing a significant amount of weight in a short period of time. And that's what happened to me. So it was very visual that Debbie was very, very poorly. And yes, so therefore it was very hard for my family to come to terms with. Also because they weren't a family that they didn't understand it. What, why yeah. did you want to lose weight? You've always loved your food. You're like top of the milk on your frosty cereal. What's the matter yeah. with so? Yeah. And so it, it was very, very tough. Um, but I went back to university. I didn't get therapy for a while. And again, you know, we go back to what's different from then to now. We'd know, wouldn't we, some more kind of easy access ways to get that person help. Even then there was the stigma. Do we tell the doctor that Debbie's not very well? Do we tell the university? Do we, what do we do? Should we try and deal with it ourselves? You know, we just, we wouldn't approach things like that now. And I'm glad we don't. And it's why, I, you know, I'm really proud. One of the things Wednesday's Child, we'll talk about this later, but one of the things Wednesday's Child's doing now is working closely with schools and universities yeah. because we need people to talk about it. And and we need people to spot these signs, don't we? Um, yeah. I, I, sorry, I'm still a little bit stuck in this issue about, but as a parent, how do you, how do you cope with seeing your child over Christmas, you know, coming back after the first term, and then you're letting them go back out the door, going back again? Yeah. What have you been able to speak with your your parents about that? You know, about the family. Well, what did they think? How did they cope with that? I mean, that must be. I know. I know. I can remember my parents dropping me back and watching my mum just cry and cry and cry because. Um, Bear in mind another thing I mentioned earlier, one of the personality traits often with people with eating disorders is they are people pleasers, perfectionists, very mm -hmm. high achievers. You weren't easily going to stop the 20 year old Debbie saying, I'm going to quit university. It wasn't in my mantra to quit. Yeah. And so I wanted to go back, however poorly I was. And perhaps now the university would refuse me. You know, 20 years on, they would probably say duty of care we cannot have you come back but actually at the time everybody was just nobody was mentioning anything yeah um and and i you know i carried on and i, and I finished my university and by the time i'd finished oddly still while no one was talking about it and mentioning how poorly i was and how you know really quite unwell i was i, I can remember one of the things i had to write to do with my journalism degree in one of my final projects was this sort of double page spread of a newspaper mocked up newspaper and my headline in that was stress study and starvation 
And it was all about like the hidden thing of eating disorders, people like me at university. And it was almost like I was saying, hello, does anybody want to talk about this? Um, so by this stage, you'd, you'd understood what you were going oh, yeah. through. Absolutely. I, I, I could have given you chapter and verse. of I knew what was going on in my brain and I knew what I was doing. So when did that penny drop for you? Um, um, it was it doesn't sound like it was immediate it doesn't no, sound like no, it was it in wasn't. that first term it wasn't but over time you suddenly realize that this has become your habit this is your new normal mm. and i knew what was happening to me i wouldn't say i understood as widely obviously as i now do about how the brain functions and what it was kind of encouraging me to do but i was very cognizant i was doing it and that this mm. was deliberate and that mm. i was finding reasons and excuses and ways and means of doing things so yes i was very very self aware but i still had got myself into that point where i'd created this persona for myself and again i would say one of the important things to recover from an eating disorder is to ask yourself what is my identity and what is it now and what might it be and the fixation on remaining stuck, as many people do with what we call severe and enduring eating disorder for like 10, 15, 20 years, people can become defined by the illness that they have. And we around people with eating disorders can almost exacerbate that because we continue to see them as the sick person. We continue to say, we're really worried about you, we're really worried. Oh. And, and you're the person that has to go to the regular doctor's appointments for your blood tests and your weigh-ins. If we can undefine ourselves by the eating disorder, we can remember that actually we're also that really vivacious, bubbly auntie, sister, cousin, whatever. We are also that really talented artist, that person who can go and set up a business doing this, or that person who loves dogs, or that person that wants to go and travel overseas. So every time I start a conversation with somebody that has an eating disorder, I always try and say to them, it's not about what's the matter with you, Katie, Joe, Colin, it's what matters to you. Mm. So if I can say to you, Colin, like, it's not about the problem is, Colin, you've got an eating disorder. It's what matters to you here and now. You mm. want to be a good dad. You want to be able to travel overseas next year. You want to be really good at your job. If I can flip your focus into what makes your brain and your body well enough to achieve that, suddenly you stop thinking about that introverted world. I must stay in this small frame of a body. I must beat myself up. And instead, you're opening up your head to thinking about the positives of the future. Mm. It's that aspirational shift. Now, I'm not going to say that, that makes it sound very easy. And, and, and of course it's not. But I think one of the big parts that we have is defining ourselves where we are or defining ourselves with what we would like to be and what we know is possible for ourselves. Because where there is no hope, then, of course, we stay stuck. Mm -hmm. So if we can create hope and aspiration and opportunity, we can move people forward. So how did things progress for you then going on from that point where you understood that actually this is where you were and you understood that something wasn't right, um, yeah, so but you can't, can you just bring yourself out of that or what did you need some extra you, help? You to be definitely need help. And whether yeah. that's your cheerleading squad who are effectively your mum, dad and, you know, best friend, Florence, whatever, or whether it's therapy or whether it's your doctor, I think it's a mix of all of that. And for me mm. also, it was also about, I had this career aspiration. I wanted to be a journalist. Before I ended my university degree, I got a letter from uh, the East Anglian, you know, the um, Archie newspaper group. And 
saying, Debbie, come and work for us. And again, all of a sudden, well, I didn't need to just hang on to this badge of being poorly person Debbie. I've got a badge now of I'll be the journalist because that's going to mm. help define me. It's going to give me a focus. It's going to give me a reason to need the energy to go and work. And that helped me being able to kind of create and shape a career path that mattered to me. I did get some therapy. I wouldn't say at the time it was hugely helpful. But again, go back to I don't think eating disorders was as well understood as mm. it was then. I did go and see my GP. I've always been fortunate. I think the GPs in this region are, are very, very good. But just as they are today, I still think there are many who look at an eating disorder with very much a tick box. Are you under this BMI, which for anybody who doesn't know, BMI is um, body mass index. So it's very much kind of a measure of your weight and height. It's a very poor kind of assessment of whether somebody has an eating disorder or not. So be a bit wary about that if your GP is dismissing your level of you know disordered behavior just because of what your weight is but you know I, I did have some good GP help some good therapy I had a great family and friends around me and I had something I believed in and, and a future that I really wanted I wanted to be able to buy my first house at 21 I you know I had these things I wanted to achieve so to a certain extent I was able to create an upward spiral now what I could say to you so that's it rest is history and of course you and I both know it's not I I've had all sorts of uh, uphills downhills kind of roller coaster ride all the way along and for many people that have mental health issues or obsessions or addictions it could be alcoholism couldn't it you know you could sail mm -hmm. along for five years and never think about alcohol and then you have a relationship disaster you lose your job financially things become difficult and those very things that were challenging for you suddenly it's like that whiskey bottle sitting over on the side and it's just speaking to you a bit mm. and for me for the rest of my life I probably will have to think are you on top of it Debbie are, are you know are you doing the right thing by yourself so now I can never say to myself I'm just really busy Colin I, I, I tell you what all right I'll meet you but I'll have to skip breakfast I won't do that because it's not right for me I don't care if you say oh, I ate last night and I can't be bothered for breakfast. I'm really clear on that now. And I have lots of friends who, for dieting reasons or because they feel they've been a bit naughty this week, they always say things like that to me. And I'll always say, yeah, but I'll sit and eat if you don't mind. Because it's really important for me that mm. I always use the thing, you know, stay in your own lane, play your own mm. game, whichever you mm. like. You know, mm. For me, that's important. That helps me stay on my own health and well-being. It means I can be the best Debbie, the best auntie, the best daughter, the best sister, but the best goddamn PR consultant I can be to get like to do the business that I'm really proud of doing. And also to be able to truthfully, with heart and head, serve other families and individuals affected by eating disorders and say to them, this will not work. I get it. I empathize. But this will not work. Do it this way. So what was it that then? after this period as you say where you would have had some good times and some maybe not so good times but what was it then in 2019 where you just thought I've got to set up this organization I've got to set up Wednesday's Child yes, and, and what about the name as well that's the other oh, thing okay. you so how that. did that all come about um, so uh so I, I hadn't really sort of sat down and thought oh yeah I must do a business you know I, I've been running my own business successfully for 20 odd years and that's that's okay that's a tick box and you know you as an entrepreneur now as well you know you kind of think well I've done that that's, that's not bad you know and then I'd have this opportunity where a client asked me if I wanted to go and work overseas 
So, um, and I thought, wow, I haven't done that. So tip, go and work in Geneva. And I live in an amazing apartment, really nice part of Switzerland. And, but I just got a little bit more time and on my hands. And I was doing a lot of sort of staying in touch with friends and family back home and maybe reading the news and just a bit more time to absorb things than just kind of aimlessly popping out socialising as I might have been doing more when I was back in the UK. And one thing that just kept appearing in my head was this whole like, where are we in 2019 with eating disorders? And bear in mind, this is pre-pandemic, because I would argue if I spoke to you in 2019 and said, what's your understanding of eating disorders? And then if I asked you just after the pandemic, I think even you would say you probably knew about eating disorders, but we got massive amount more of news coverage around eating disorders during Mm. the pandemic because Mm. it was seen that it was talked about that lots more adolescents experienced it during that period mm. but but back in 2019 I was looking at this and nothing has changed here I am somebody that comes from that Suffolk region and all I can see that the delivery is exactly the same model we treat people that are full to a certain weight and we do it in exactly the same way cognitive behavioral therapy if they're really bad we put them into a, an inpatient unit I've been in an inpatient unit I can tell you it serves a function to get a weight up but unless there is something else that follows on from that, it's just going to be a revolving door for the end of time because you kick people out and you say to people, great, Katie, you're now at this weight. Go and cook in your own kitchen. Go and learn to go out for a restaurant meal with yourself. Go and cook with your husband. Go and learn to feel what it feels like to walk around a supermarket when you're petrified of food again. You've just been in our inpatient unit for six months, but now go and do that without occupational therapy and a lot of external support as you come out of a unit like that, you just push people back into the trap. Never mind how families deal with it when daughter is sent home after a six month inpatient stay. And so I, I was looking at all this and thinking it's just, it's not enough. There's too many families falling apart here. We need to do something more. So um, at the time, I'd got this idea that maybe it would work as a, a little bit of a social enterprise based on lived experience. And it started quite humbly as a, a gift box um, scenario of, of sending effectively like well-being boxes to anybody that was going through an eating disorder. Because I often used to feel that if somebody wanted to send you good wishes or a gift when you were particularly poorly, they didn't know what to put in it because, well, if somebody's got an eating disorder, do you put chocolate in it or do they not eat? What, what, what do I put a book in it about mindfulness and depression? Or is that really bad? Should I not be doing that? Should I put mm. a comfort blanket in a hot water bottle? So I, I created these little gift boxes and they were going really well. And it, it, it you know, I was very, very lucky. Got some support from uh, Shout About Suffolk, which is down in Melton in Suffolk at the time and it's sort of helping incubated social enterprises. And that got off the ground. But what I noticed very quickly is it just, it kind of opened a massive door, particularly around the east of England, of people just saying, this speaks to me, I need help, my family need help, my child needs help. But the one thing they kept saying is, can we have therapy? Can Wednesday's child provide therapy? So it went from boxes and me saying, I don't want to do therapy, I'm not sure how we do that, to actually very quickly saying, I need to create a team of therapists. So I ended up sourcing some of the best eating disorder therapies that have operated around the UK. And I'd have to argue COVID worked in my favour in that respect, because obviously this was at the end of 2019. By early 2020, we were in COVID. And whereas had I have needed to base all those therapists in Suffolk, I couldn't have done it. But all of a sudden I could by Zoom 
bring the best eating disorder psychologists and family therapists who'd ever worked in inpatient units or with people with very severe and enduring eating disorders. I could make them able to use Wednesday's child as a medium to help families and individuals. And so in this last couple of years, you know, we've helped well over a thousand individuals that have had eating disorders, many of whom we've been able to offer free sessions for wherever possible when this funding enables us to do so. We offer six free sessions. And if you've ever tried to get help for somebody with an eating disorder, they can be on a waiting list for 18 months on the NHS. Yeah, so yeah. us being able to say, what well, you can have your first session next week, if you like, that, that's meant an awful lot for those families. It stopped them imploding and it's given them some tools and in their kind of toolkit to just get by. And, and then maybe they go on to NHS or maybe they continue with our therapy and they donate and, and continue. But so that that's kind of where the model has got to. And uh, as I say, it's um it's it's been quick and it's been strange times. But um yeah, it certainly hasn't exactly followed what I thought the natural business plan was. <laughs> so how many therapists do you have working with you and, and how do you fund everything? So that's so the funding is is tricky. So um, we've got about seven now. Um, we've got one just about to join us as well, who's got more of a sort of specialism in art therapy because actually art and creative therapies are really beneficial with eating, people with eating disorders. Um, and they all operate as sort of um, associated practitioners for us, and we use them for individuals and families where they are most befitting. Especially like we've now got into quite a perinatal focus as well. So we've got a specialist area in that, and we use the therapists that are right for working with pregnant people with eating disorders or people that have recently had children. So we use the right specialists for the right people. Um, the funding, we've had an incredible amount of support from Suffolk Community Foundation. They were brilliant before the pandemic and all during the pandemic. We are not a registered charity at this point. We're a social enterprise, so a not-for-profit. That means everything we get, we plow straight back into offering these services. So we've been able to apply for grants through something like Suffolk Community Foundation. And as you'll know, all through the pandemic, they got various funding that came down from government and they were able to allocate in this region. So we would write an application off and say, can we use this money to give 10 people in the county some eating disorders therapy? And that was wonderful. And we were able to also put some support groups on. Um, we did uh, monthly support groups for parents and carers online. Um, we created some educational packs for schools. Um, we've done some uh, e-learning modules and things that have helped people learn about eating disorders. So we've been able to develop a lot of things thanks to that funding. But actually, as you've talked to me today, we are now underway. Newsflash, a few people know about it, but not great. Not too many. So you can have this as an exclusive. We're actually underway with the process of moving into a formal charitable status. So that where that will leverage us is, is really significant because when you're just a social enterprise, I say just, we're mighty kind of in our intention, but you do come across some hurdles in terms of receiving funding and donations because there's that fine line, as I'm sure you'll know with the work that you do, it, it's really difficult to say what does what constitutes a social enterprise when strictly speaking they're listed as a limited company and how do I know? That person's not putting their money into being having a Maserati or whatever, you know. Mm. So charitable status will really leverage us. And we've got such goodwill behind our organisation now. I get all the time people saying, if I run the London Marathon, can I do it in aid of Wednesday's child? Well, I can't say yes until we're registered as a charity. And it will also enable us to go for things like the Children in Need funding and National Lottery. So I hope you'll see much more of us on a much bigger scale. Um, but, you know, for anybody listening, I would say right here, right now, you know, 
100 pounds pays for one hour's session with an eating disorder psychologist that's just what it is that's that's you know that's just the cost to us before we can provide that to a parent and you know for us to receive any kind of funding from a corporate out there who maybe has been affected by it understands it or whatever or says i'll pay wednesday's child for you to come in and do a lunch and learn session about eating disorders i wish i really wish more organizations would do that i had a conversation maybe about 18 months ago with a business in Suffolk and said, you've got 500 staff. Can I come and do a talk about eating disorders? And the person said to me, oh, Debbie, I don't think you'll find there's one person in our organisation who's got an eating disorder. And, and I found, found myself sort of, you know, is that kind of complete, oh, what a sigh, because it's A, it's just not true. It just, it yeah. can't be true. Yeah. And, you know, two, it goes to show how hidden it is. You know, people have, People might be binging, purging, you have no idea. But also, even if that was true, even if 500 staff hadn't got an eating disorder, how many of them have got children at home that are growing up with disordered eating, going to school, worrying about their diet, you know, pretending to be a vegan when actually it's just a reason to lose weight and are within the next year, few years going to suffer anorexia or bulimia or drawn into that trap of social media comparison? So actually every adult needs to understand where eating disorders come from, what can we spot, what can we do about it, and how could we help more organisations like Wednesday's Child, and I don't care if it's other organisations, frankly, this isn't about competition, this is about collaboration, because we all want less people to suffer, right? Mm. So, you know, I want more people like us to be supported in having enough funds to reach out there and help more people. So can you give us an example of the types of I mean, you might even have particular case studies in mind, obviously no names or anything, but particular case studies of people and their, what they've gone through or how they've come to you and then how you've been able to help. Because um, you must have seen huge progress with individuals. And it's yeah, interesting to hear that. Absolutely. So, several, so during the pandemic, a lot was about teenage children who... Um, either maybe had been keeping some closet eating disorder behaviours that hadn't been so identified, identifiable to mum and dad until they all lived at home under one roof. So children who perhaps at school had been having a lunch and then vomiting in the toilet at school, but mum never knew about it, or had been telling mum and dad that they'd been eating at school and therefore they didn't want a full lunch, when full meal when they came home. The days schedule was very much more apparent when we were all living with one another mm. and then perhaps they were also realizing my daughter now is wanting to walk you know 10 miles a day and I don't understand where this has come from is this an overnight thing and and then the the lockdown meaning that well we're having all arguments because she can't go out and exercise and oh you know my 21 year old's home from university and she can't access the local gym so she's binging and purging or I'm finding wrappers of hidden food in her duvet. There was all these sorts of things, lots mm. of families coming mm. forward with those sorts of stories. And we were able to say, okay, let's let's get you kind of a therapist appointment. Often when it's younger children, we would start by saying to mum and dad, do you want a session with our eating disorders family therapist? Because sometimes the young person's not ready to engage, either because they're too young to, or because they feel resistant, they feel reluctant, they feel found out. And so we can say to mum and dad, your child isn't ready to go just you know sit and have the therapy on screen or in person but what we can do is give you as mum and dad the toolkit to say this mm. is how to manage patient you know I had parents saying my child is clearly a binge eater and at night is eating us like I mean it was really quite distressing in COVID so obviously food it was the case of queuing up at the supermarket and trying to get access to certain things 
if you've got a binge eater in your household who could very easily get you get through two boxes of ice cream and a loaf of bread a day and have sat and eaten that at midnight and then disposed of all the wrappers it's really distressing for the family a realizing it's happening and not knowing how to help that young person and b how do you replace all the food when we've got a queue up outside the supermarket for it and we so there were all these awful things happening that you kind of think oh my god i didn't realize how much that would impact people mm. so at least we could say to mum and dad have those family therapy sessions with us realize that we can work around this without you needing to put a fridge on the a lock on the fridge or ban your child from being in the kitchen or throwing crockery at each other because it all gets that you mm. know distressing mm. um we had a couple of cases where we had um uh, we had a 23 year old that was arrested for shoplifting and it was because her eating disorder had got so out of out of whack that again we talk about that obsession with food she had very very severe anorexia and but she would go around the supermarket and take in lots of food didn't really want to eat it but she was obsessed with the food and her brain was so starved and unable to cope that she couldn't process it so we were able to kind of help her come to get come to terms with her shame and say this isn't you this is you're not that person we're going to help you through that and again she lived on her own through the pandemic can you imagine how awful that was you know and, mm. and the shame that this very articulate person you know was, was going through so individuals like that again we've been able to help them with effectively like cognitive behavioral therapy techniques but cbt alone is is brilliant it will create some powerful tools for your toolbox but also the bit that adds to that is the occupational therapy side which was a little bit more tricky during the pandemic but since then we've been able to say so i will go shopping with people that have an eating disorder and need to get back into the habit of walking around a supermarket and find mm. it more comfortable i'll go out and have lunch with them and i'll get over that hurdle of them saying it's okay i'm going to order a diet coke to okay shall we put how about we have a cup of tea and we're going to have full fat milk in that and it sounds like really small incremental steps but that day that you can eventually say to them now you choose a sandwich off the menu or you let me go and choose for you and just take you by surprise. You're not going to mm -hmm. tell me what bread it's going to, it's not going to be, I'm not going to tell you whether it's got butter on the bread or whether it's white bread or bread. You're just going to eat that with me. I've seen massive shifts in the progress we've made with some of the people because we've done those really little things. And I'm sure there'll be people listening to this thinking, she's mad. What, what kind of therapy is that to make somebody eat a sandwich? But when you know mm -hmm. that was somebody who was eating half an apple in the morning and half an apple in the evening and taking a dozen laxatives every night and running 10 miles a day well you know you've made a difference to that person because actually you've not only moved them from all those behaviors you've made them go to the doctors less you've made them more capable of forming relationships and having social inclusivity again they can more likely get a job they can more likely have life aspirations on a contribution to society and and isn't that what we all want? Yeah, that's incredible. And that's the thing, probably from where I'm sitting, I'm not familiar with, you might recognise the issue and the condition, um, but actually getting someone through to where they're going through things where they're experiencing, I hate to use the word normal, but I suppose that's the only word we can use, a more normal day or a more normal experience of going out for a meal with somebody. You've yeah. got to get through those transitions and somebody like you would understand the huge leap each one of those steps actually is yeah um yeah. And whereas this week, this week in fact i got a i got a card from somebody who um wrote me a card and it was a thank you card and i thought oh you know when you think i don't know what i've done lately what have i done i haven't sent a present to anybody what have i done 
And I opened this card and it was a copy of a baby scan. And it was a woman that we helped right at the early part of um, COVID. And for her, COVID was different. So it wasn't getting worse. It was, oh my God, I've had enough of this. I cannot live like this anymore. And now I'm in lockdown and no one's going to see my weight incrementally go up. Nobody's going to watch what I eat. I'm living on my own. I'm just going to change this. I'm, and I would, I use the expression on our Wednesday chat. We have a Wednesday chat podcast. And I say with my co-presenter all the time, it's about when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And she had got sick and tired of being sick and tired. And she just said, sod this. I have had enough of my behavior. So during COVID, we gave her a lot of kind of therapy and we have a befriending program. So I befriended her every week. I would be on the phone and we would have a good giggle and we got on really well. And just after lockdown finished, she started dating. And she always thought that the damage she had done for 15 years of anorexia meant she would never, ever fall pregnant. She'd ruled it out. Well, this week, I know that it's happening. And, and that for me is like, oh my God, what an achievement. So it feels like we are still this very small Suffolk-based eating disorders organization but when i see things like that i think triumph in any means is that's big isn't it it's big and actually you know it's just uh, you say just it's not it's this is one person whose life you've totally turned around and the fact is it isn't just one that from what you're saying is dozens it's yeah. perhaps hundreds of people yeah. um and for each of them to live and again i'm I'm using the word normal when it's maybe not the best word to use, but I can't think of another one. But people who are returning back to being able to enjoy other people's company and friendship, whereas perhaps they've isolated themselves because of the stigma of the issues that they've been going through. Yeah, and, and I always sort of say a kind of full and fulfilling life. So it's, yeah. it's living, you know, we sometimes talk about quasi recovery and quasi recovery is where you could say, oh, I just about eat enough and you know, nobody really knows because I don't look too bad. Mm. And I just, I moderate where my food is and every now and then I'll self-sabotage and go out and run way more than I should. That's quasi-recovery. It means you could still go out and you could you could have a relationship if you want. You could have a job if you want. But you're not really happy. You're just living in a maintained- You're sort of masking of some of the issues Absolutely. through yeah. other things. Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes it's referred to as like a functioning anorexic or right. functioning bulimic. You're kind of out there, but you're living with that addiction. I'm sure there's, there's functioning alcoholics, isn't there? There are people mm -hmm. that have still got that behaviour, but actually they can still pitch up for work because they've worked out a way they can make it work in their life. But, oh, my God, when freedom comes, when freedom comes and you can live a fulfilling life, that's, that's the switch. Yeah, incredible. So talk us through Wednesday's Child. We haven't addressed this name yet. The name. So... Well, I don't know. Have you heard of, of the, it's like, a, I was just going to say like a nursery rhyme. It's not, it's not a nursery rhyme. So it's kind of Monday's child is Farrah Face, Tuesday's child is full of grace, isn't it? And, and Wednesday's child, which funnily enough, I was born on a Wednesday. It's always Wednesday's child is full of woe. And I've always hated knowing I was born on Wednesday. because I think, Yeah, oh, well, really I'll depressing. give you a secret. I was born on a Wednesday as well. Uh, so yeah, that's quite and horrible, it's just, isn't it? It's like all the days. Why, why can't I be the one that's full of joy? It's got far to go. Why can't I be one of them? And I always felt a bit like, oh, well, is that the dyer's cast then? Like, is that why I had the mental health issue? Is that why, am I a mess? Is that why I'm a problem? And then when I started thinking about creating this organisation, I was thinking, well, that's my way of kind of saying, I am the person who I've got lived experience of having the woe and being that person. But that doesn't define you and it doesn't make you a bad or lesser person. Actually, Wednesday's child has every capacity 
to be so full of love, energy, vibrancy and opportunity as any child born on any other day of the week. And there was something quite, I don't know, cathartic in saying, yeah, I'm that person who's full of woe, but do you know what I'm doing with that woe? I'm, I'm turning it into positivity. So while I realise for some people that kind of name hasn't really sort of kind of resonated, for me, it just, I don't know, it, it feels like it told my story. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? If that's what it does, then that's apt and it's well worth using because, as you say, it's got a message behind it. So that's really powerful. Debbie, that's been absolutely amazing. I, I'm just um, thinking if I'm listening to this and I'm concerned about a family member, you know, I suppose the, the classic is, you know, teenagers, but not exclusively. You've been very clear on saying, actually, be careful it's not just teenagers it could be people of all ages all backgrounds but if there's individuals who we're concerned about what would you suggest we do okay so i'm really grateful of you just referencing that point again colin because it is really important at the moment we're helping someone as young as seven and someone as old as 72 and that's men that's women you know it's people of all races colors creeds and backgrounds so we really and, and all shapes and sizes of bodies as well so we really have to be aware of that um, when it comes to eating disorders I would say if you're if you're in doubt there's no doubt so don't procrastinate about it and think shall I wait until she loses three stone and then worry about it don't think oh I've only seen her hide a few meals or hide a few wrappers and underneath the duvet or you know skip a few meals or if you're starting to see somebody feel like they're withdrawn not enjoying life as much as they did before they've got some perhaps behaviors around food or their body or exercise they're maybe talking a lot about food they're wanting to cook for you all the time and almost kind of overcompensate in wanting to help others eat and enjoy food any of those kind of behaviors and just like as I say just retreating from that life and vigor that they used to have then I would say okay question that and there are lots of other organizations that this isn't just a plug for Wednesday child whatsoever you know BEAT is the National Eating Disorders Organization you can contact someone like BEAT you can go and speak to um, an independent therapist. You can obviously make an appointment with your GP if you sit down with that person and say, look, do you think it's time we go and have a chat with the doctor and see what's going on? Or you can reach out to an organization with us, like ourselves. What I would say is what, treat it just as the individual, you will know them best as to whether the right approach is to sit down and talk to them about what you've noticed, what you've seen. If you call somebody out on the fact that you've actually you've heard them throwing up or you've seen them hiding food or you know that they had that binge last night when you call somebody out on their eating disorder behaviors they will be incredibly defensive incredibly upset and the deceit might heighten but also you force them back into forming a greater bond with the eating disorder that's the last thing you want to do they are starting to believe that their best friend in the world is the eating disorder mm. so the idea of breaking that is to make sure that it feels like you as the loved one are there for them and you have to step in and it is going to be like treading on eggshells initially to think what's the best way of doing this otherwise I'm just throwing a you know hand grenade in the mix and nobody needs that and the analogy I've used before is that imagine as a family you're in a kind of in a rowing boat and you're all rowing along and somebody drops their oars off over the side of the boat okay what do we all do do we all keep rowing a nice steady path or do we think, oh my God, that person is no longer able to row. So we'll all throw our oars out of the boat. We'll all panic. We'll all run up and down. And what happens? The whole boat capsizes. Think of that like family life when an eating disorder comes within the mix of it. 
your job right now is to keep things as calm as you can and as steady as you can while doing what is the right thing to get yourself back on course. The right thing is to get yourself armed with knowledge and information and to have the conversations at the right time in the right way. And if we are the right organisation to help you to do that, then we're very happy. Well, that's amazing. Um, That's very helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you for just talking us through personally your own experiences too, because, uh, yeah, that's that's hard to listen to, but I guess it just helps us to understand what's going on and that it can just be someone, as you say, from a perfectly straightforward Suffolk background, um, but it can be impacting. So we all need to just be alert to that. But yeah, for what you've done and set up over the last three years is incredible. Oh, thank you, Colin. Really appreciate that. Thank you. And uh, yeah, thank you. We'll watch what you're doing with interest. But I think as much as anything else, it's something that probably we all need to just be a bit more mindful of. And um, having an organisation like Wednesday's Child around to be able to help us uh, should that arise, then that's incredibly powerful. Thank you. Thanks for your time today, Dewey. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet. Please do ensure that you subscribe so that you'll always be notified of when a new edition is available. And if you can give us a five star rating, uh, then others will be able to find us much easier. I'm particularly grateful to our guest for this week, who is Debbie Watson, and we wish Debbie well with all of the great work that she does with Wednesday's Child. I'm also completely indebted to the three amazing people who put this project together behind the scenes, and that is Joy Day for working on our website and visuals, for Sally Birch, who books and arranges our uh, interviewees, uh, and to Kevin Birch uh, for his skills in editing and trimming this down into a format that works so thanks to all three of them for the amazing work that they do please do join us next time on the suffolk money podcast